and they're doing other things. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Oh, excellent. I get a response. Excellent. Uh, I'm Maureen Conway. I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. And I'm delighted to welcome you to our second conversation in our Working in America Roundtable series. Um, in this series, we discuss a range of issues affecting working Americans today, um, primarily uh, people who are working but are sort of in the lower half of the income distribution. And um, one of the chief challenges we face in our economy and indeed in our society today is is to help more Americans find jobs, and not just any jobs, but jobs that they can um, support themselves and their families on. Um, so in this series, we look at a range of challenges uh, faced by workers, but we also uh, try to explore ideas about how these challenges can be addressed and how um, things can be better. Uh, we're extremely grateful to the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, and the Cerna Foundation for their support of this series. Um, I also want to give a, a special appreciation to my colleagues in the Ascend program here at the Aspen Institute. They were very helpful to us as we shaped today's conversation. Um, and if you want to learn more about that program, they have some materials out on our, our resource table. So I hope you had a chance to see the resource table. There's a number of things from our speakers there as well. Um, in America today, one in five adults between the ages of 25 and 64 earns a wage that's insufficient to live a family above the poverty line. So that's 20% so that's of adult workers. Um, this situation is not really expected to improve much in the near future. As our recovery, sort of weak as it is, continues, um, we've seen that we've been creating sort of more low-wage jobs um, and uh, proportionately more low-wage jobs than what we lost during the recession. We lost proportionately more sort of middle family wage jobs. Um, so uh, the other, you know, conversation we've been having about our economy for many years now is that we're becoming a service economy, right, a, the service sector economy. But the service sector, the jobs in retail, restaurants, hotels, home health, long-term care, and, of course, child care, um, they don't pay particularly well. And compounding the low wages, um, they often are part-time, have irregular hours, uh, lack employment benefits such as um, paid sick leave, retirement, uh, health insurance, and other benefits. So, but interestingly, when we think about employment benefits, we don't often think about childcare as one of the benefits that should go along with employment. And yet, half of our workforce is women, um, and many of them have children. Uh, interestingly, um, when I was sort of getting ready for this I, this uh, speech, you know, we sort of um, many of you know when we passed welfare reform, right? We decided women should work, and so we think, okay, so single mothers have to work, but married mothers work too, um, and many married mothers don't have a choice. And so, interestingly, when I was looking at some statistics, one thing I noticed was that in 2010, uh, the rate of employment for women in married couple households was very single similar to the rate of employment in single parent households, 65% versus 67%. Um, but this trend is unsurprising when you consider the tremendous economic stress many families face today. Um, so given that uh, we want women to work and, we, um, and it's good for our economy for women to work, we think it's really time to think about how do we, how do we uh, make sure that children can be cared for while their mothers are working. Um, before we begin, and we'll begin soon, I just wanted to ask, um, how many parents do we have here today? People with kids? I have kids. 
Very good. Excellent. And I'm glad to see we have some dads here, too. I've been talking about mothers, but um, dads are important. I will say personally, my husband's been very important in my child care plan. Um, <laughs> so I want to appreciate the dads. <laughs> um, um, but most of our statistics and things are about working mothers. And I think our conversation today is going to focus both on primarily on women workers, both the women who are child caregivers and the, the women who are looking for, who are working and looking for care for their children. Um, child care, uh, I will say for me, and um, my staff knows this actually, so child care can be somewhat of an emotional topic. Um, many of us, you know, we have strong opinions about it. We made choices for our own children. Some of those choices we feel really good about. Some of them we wonder about. And some of them we still are struggling with. Are, are we doing the right thing? Um, it's, a very, it's a very challenging topic, and I just want to recognize that, um, that we bring a lot of emotion to it. But I hope that w as we bring this emotion and we bring our thinking about it, um, that will just engage you even more in the conversation. And I just want to welcome you again and say how happy I am that you are here to join this conversation and contribute to it. Um, and uh, so in light of contributing to it, you can not only contribute by asking questions when we get to our Q&A time, but you can also follow our work at Aspen Workforce on Twitter and engage in today's conversation using the hashtag childcarejobs. Okay, I think I'm done with my announcements. So now let me introduce our fabulous panel. And first, I really want to thank um, uh, Helen Blank, Director of Child Care and Early early learning at the National Women's Law Center who agreed to join us. Um, you can see there's been a little change in your uh, schedule. Lynette Frega unfortunately could not uh, make it today, but um, we are so glad that Helen was able to rearrange her schedule and join us for today's conversation and um, are really delighted to, to have her here. And as you can see from her bio and from all our speakers' bios, which are in your materials, and I will not read to you, um, we have a really, really great panel. So in addition to Helen, Let's see, next to her we have um, Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner, um, I hope I said that right, um, Executive Director and CEO and Co-Founder of Moms Rising. Uh, next to Kristen we have Denise Dowell, Director of Early, Early Learning and Care Programs at CSEA, which is one of the largest affiliates of Ask Me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and next to Denise we have Susan Brenner, uh, Senior Vice President of Education at Bright Horizons Family Solutions. And we are so pleased and delighted to have Catherine Rample here from the New York Times moderating today's discussion. And so with that, I will turn it over to Catherine. Thank you. So thanks, everyone, for coming. You know, here we are obviously talking about the importance of providing affordable child care, which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, uh, both for the well-being of the parents and their ability to, you know, earn a livelihood and that sort of thing, and for the children as well. Um, talking about high-quality childcare and the importance of that. Um, feminist debates aside and debates about gender roles, you know, having a parent be a stay-at-home parent, particularly a stay-at-home mom, is kind of a luxury in a way that it wasn't many decades ago, um, in that families need two incomes to get by. Um, and besides that, we now have a much higher share of births being born to um, single moms. So even if um, you know, you wanted to have only one income, there's no spare parent, obviously, to stay at home. So obviously, there is a huge need for having some sort of other alternative. Uh, other rich countries have been much more generous with their social safety net um, in this as in other respects. Um, we were talking earlier about how there was an article, or maybe it was an NPR story recently, about how Sweden now has some 24-hour public 
child care centers, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, you know, the U.S. was not, <laughs> or at least not, nothing close to, to that sort of availability. Um, and the absence of affordable child care uh, in the U.S. has been um, a, probably a, a factor for why the United States has lower labor force participation rates for women than a lot of other countries. Uh, you know, we just don't have the flexibility for women who, who want to work and who have kids. If anything, childcare in the United States has actually gotten more expensive, um, as you'll see in the fact sheet that I think was handed around. Um, childcare costs, after adjusting for inflation, have nearly doubled um, per week since the 80s. Um, so, you know, the, the strain has only gotten worse as the need has gotten greater. Um, and actually, about a third of children under five were in 2011 were regularly in some sort of um, formal non-relative care arrangement um, in, uh, in 2011, whether that's daycare, Head Start, or, or anything else. Um, and about 40% were in uh, the care of a relative, usually grandma, actually, your grandparent, I should say. It was actually an economist I spoke with recently who said that when we're talking about this whole lean-in conversation for middle and lower income women, we should actually be reframing it as lean-on grandma basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> although, of course, you know, grandparents are not always available. Um, and grandparents are not always available in the locations where work might be available. So again, just all underscoring um, the need for talking about these issues. So I wanted to start um, by asking Kristen to sort of define our terms a little bit. What is affordable childcare? I mean, what, based on the membership of uh, Moms Rising, what is it that, that moms are looking for? Um, you know, is there like a certain rule of thumb for what, what share of their income they expect to pay for, for um, some sort of childcare arrangement? And what does the lack of availability for affordable childcare do to their ability to succeed in the workforce? That's an excellent question. So for those folks out here who don't know what Moms Rising is, Moms Rising is an organization that was started in May of 2006 with just a handful of members. And now through moms telling moms, through friends telling friends, we now have 1.1 million members and rising. And we also have a combined blog and social media reach of over 3 million readers, which makes us a media outlet in our own right. What's interesting about this story is that it's women coming together to say that when this many people are having the same problem at the same time, we don't have an epidemic of personal failings. We have a national structural issue that we must address. And so what we're doing at Moms Rising is we're working on three things. We're working on increasing family economic security, decreasing discrimination against women and moms, particularly in the labor force, and building a nation, importantly, where both businesses and families can thrive. As you can see from that matrix, Childcare is a huge priority for our members. It's been a huge priority for our members from the very start. Women in America know what's going on. I want to share with you how many people in this room have a number of women that you think have kids by the time they're 44. Think of a number. Do you have a number? Okay, don't say it out loud. 82% of American women have kids by the time they're 44 years old. So when we're talking about this struggle, when we're talking about the lack of access to affordable, accessible, high-quality early learning opportunities in childcare, we're talking about the majority of women. So the Moms Rising membership spans every state in the nation, and our membership also spans the economic spectrum. And our membership also matches the US Census in terms of ethnic and racial composition. 
So we have stories from all types of women from all over the nation. And I actually brought some stories with me from all over the country from moms sharing what's going on in their lives about early learning and childcare. And I can tell you, everybody's having trouble. In many high-income areas, you can't pay enough to get into the high-quality early learning centers. I mean, the waiting lists are years long. You have to get on the list when you're pregnant or maybe, you know, 10 years before you find your date, right? <laughs> In the low-income areas, the actual cost of childcare, as you mentioned, has doubled since the 1980s. We've also had a tremendous change in our workforce participation. Three-quarters of moms are in the labor force, and 50% of the entire paid labor force are women for the first time in history. So we have family economic securities, like in access to child care, that are stuck in the stone ages, and we have a modern labor force. And this is impacting us all. This is a big deal. And this is a big deal not just to moms, not just to women, but also to men and to our national economy. Because something that's important that we can talk about later is that when women don't have money to spend, our whole economy suffers. We're built on consumer spending right now, for better or worse. And women make 85% of consumer spending decisions. And when we have a situation like we do right now, where having a baby is going off a fast cliff to poverty, we have a situation that is impacting our entire national economy and the outcome for us all, for business success, for family success, and for children to be able to thrive. So what we're finding at Moms Rising is that our members are active. They understand what's going on at the city, county, and state, and federal level. And they are ready to stand behind President Obama's bold proposition to actually really fund early learning for the first time ever in our country. So I'm excited to be here today. And I hope I got all your questions. I didn't take notes, but you had a lot of them, so thank you. <laughs> uh, so Helen, um, what share of childcare costs are paid by gov the government, in whether it's in the form of direct subsidies or tax subsidies or anything like that? What share is usually borne by families? And given um, you know, the, the critical period in a child's life that we're talking about, you know, the early childhood in particular, if we're talking about daycare, and the effects that um, their, their, the quality of their environment has on their longer-term earnings potential, how should we be thinking about shifting the burden from sort of a private you know, an individual family burden to a public sector burden, especially in the context of austerity and all of these other questions? Well, about 40% of childcare is paid for by public, and the, the rest of it, the bulk of it, is paid for by parents. And that is one of the most challenging issues as we face ensuring that our children get the high-quality childcare they need to be successful in school and to be successful in in life. You, it doesn't work um, without a third party payer. Parents do the best they can, but they can't afford high quality care on their own. Low income families, middle income families, it's just too hard. And we do it all on the backs of low income workers. And childcare should actually cost a lot more if we paid the women who were providing the childcare. It would be totally out of reach. We only help one in six children who are eligible for federal childcare assistance. And when we help them, the amount that we provide families does not enable families to provide to access high quality childcare and sometimes it's very hard to access any childcare at the low rates that states pay. It's a system of scarcity. The states help families pay for care, they decide who gets help, they decide what share of the cost families have, and they decide what to pay providers. And they're always making Solomon like choices. It just doesn't work and you talk about a time of austerity at a time of aust a time of austerity 
actually calls for investing in childcare and early learning. It actually calls for enacting the president's plan for early learning because childcare is a twofer. We know it helps women work and we often don't look at that part of it. For children, having, an, having their parents have an income and not be stressed because they can't find adequate childcare and bring that stress home is really, really critical. And we made a commitment in 1996 when the Welfare Act was passed to our lowest income women that we would help them work because there is no entitlement to, to cash assistance for families. So low income women have no choice but to work and that commitment is fraying. And the other part of the twofer is that we know that high quality early learning opportunities give children the, the early start they need to do well in school and later in life. We have study after study. People talk about evidence base. The evidence is, is astounding in early childhood that high quality early childhood opportunities pay off for our current and our future economy. And we're failing on, on every on every score and, and parents, um, low income, middle income, as, as Kristen talked about, can talk about what a struggle they face every, every single day. So Susan, I wanted to turn to the private sector in a sense since we just talked a little bit about the, the role for, the public, for public policy. Um, you know, I know that Bright Horizons, which you are involved with, um, is, a, uh, is one of the world's largest providers for childcare um, and uh, early schooling services, and that you were primarily hired by private companies, right, Correct. to um, provide care for their employees' children. So I'm wondering, what is the role of the private sector in sort of creating a new norm for adding childcare as a benefit um, alongside health insurance, I mean it's expensive obviously, but alongside health insurance and, and paid sick leave and and the other types of benefits that we usually think of as going with at least you know, higher paying jobs. Um, what kinds of trends are you seeing in the private sector and, and what's changing? Sure, well I, I think, you know, if you think about childcare as, um, as an engagement between a center and teachers and so on with families and children and you draw that line, uh, I, I think of uh, adding, making a triangle out of it and on this other point of the triangle, are employers, clients. And these are clients who want to be the employers of choice and have come to the realization that providing childcare is a very <coughs> sticky benefit. It's a benefit that works. People come, it's very rare that you'll have families engaged in on-site childcare provided by an employer who are thinking about leaving until their children age out of the program. And that, that's the re reality of it. So what we do is we, we work with clients when they're just thinking about this, just thinking about this as a potential uh, benefit that they might provide. And we do consulting work about what kind of childcare, what should the cost of childcare be at this center, how should it work, what should the hours be. And each center is tailored to that employer, to that workplace, to make it just the right kind of care for the people who work there. Uh, we, we have our own architects. We work with other architects. We design, build the program so that it's not only a great place for children, but a great place to work in childcare. Uh, and then finally, we operate, we, we manage these programs. So let me just tell you how it plays out. Um, Johnson & Johnson one of the first companies to, uh, to get into employer-sponsored childcare. We operate five centers for them in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Once that happened, 
almost every other pharmaceutical company in New Jersey developed childcare. Because again, if you want young people to come and work, you want the scientists and the physicians and so on to come and work, you've got to have it. So it created in an industry uh, a, a need to have rather than a nice to have benefit. Uh, we, we have centers for hospitals, for, uh, for uh, automobile manufacturers. That means we have to operate shifts. Sometimes we have to operate 24 hours a day because that's what those employees need. And again, we want to make it as easy as possible for them to, to get quality. Um, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, we operate 15 centers and they're backup centers. They decided to take a different route, that they would have smaller centers in many of their locations uh, for people to use when their regular childcare arrangements fall through. And so they do that, they use it coming back to work, which is such a, such a tough period uh, for moms and dads actually coming back in, special program for that. Uh, Land's End flexes up in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, because when you all start ordering those turtlenecks for Christmas, we have to flex up and make sure we have enough caregivers there. And then probably one of them, the most unique programs is uh, we operate childcare for both the LPGA and the PGA. So we travel, we have teams of teachers who travel uh, with the tours, and we have um, uh, cartons that, with everything in a childcare center you need that fly and hopscotch all over the country to, to where the pros will be. So again, it's the idea of making the program not one size fits all, not one hours, not one cost, not one anything, but rather make it so that people at work uh, have exactly the kind of care they need when they need it. So Denise, let's talk about the people who work in child care. Um, you know, give us a sense of their wages and what their quality of life is like and what their chances are for upward mobility, given that these are low-paying jobs. So, so across the board, wages and benefits are very low, and it doesn't really matter whether you're working in a child care center or even, you know, many pre-K programs, when people hear about pre-K, they think, well, these are programs that are in public schools in New York State. 60% of pre-K programs are in community-based organizations, and I can assure you that there is no parity um, pay with um, public school teachers in those settings. Then um, there are home-based child care providers, family child care providers, um, who uh, some of them are regulated, registered, licensed, and in a family child care home, you'll find many of them that operate very much like a center with a very strong learning environment and program. They're small businesses, oftentimes started by women who were out in the workplace and didn't like the options they had for childcare and said, you know what, I really want to be home with my kids. I like working with kids. I'm going to open my ch a childcare program in my home. I know there's a need in the neighborhood um, and actually did that. And then there is care also that's provided by what's called legally exempt providers or um, family, friend, and neighbor providers. And these are folks um, who oftentimes are related to families who qualify for help paying for child care and are able, very, very importantly, they are able to provide care non-traditional hours and they're able to accommodate just-in-time scheduling where parents don't know what their schedule is going to be um, from moment to moment. And I think the quality of jobs, we don't have enough data, I don't think, really, in terms of uh, to, to differentiate among these 
different sectors within the industry. That's something that I think HHS is working with the Department of Labor to, um, to do a better job at, at sort of collecting some of the data. But the quality of jobs is definitely directly related to parents' capacity to pay. Um, and so quality of jobs is going to be better in a, in a higher income neighborhood where you've got parents that can afford to pay, generally speaking. It's going to be um, lower in neighborhoods where parents can't afford as much. And then the other thing is that, you know, we do have this subsidy system that Helen was talking about, and it's not very well funded. And what we're seeing now, and National Women's Law Center did a great, does a great report, I think, every year about what's happening with subsidy systems in states, is that these subsidy systems do not support um, quality care and, and quality jobs in any of these modalities. So when we first organized a union in Philadelphia back in 1997, 98, one of the first places we organized was actually a large chain of childcare centers that was focusing on serving low-income um, families in, and they were serving about 25% of the subsidized market in Philadelphia. And we were able to work with, we had actually an excellent working relationship with that company where we were able to improve the quality of care and the quality of jobs. But part of the reason we were able to do it was because in Pennsylvania at that time, the, the childcare subsidy system paid based on a child's enrollment, not attendance. Okay? That's a, if, you know, if any of you who are paying for childcare, you know that you pay based on enrollment, right? If your center is closed for a week or whatever, generally you're paying for that week or your child is absent, you're paying. So at that time, in Pennsylvania, they paid based on enrollment, not attendance. And so we were actually able to work with that company to provide, at, at the time, what the workers wanted was not more money per hour. They want higher wages. They wanted guaranteed hours of work, which they didn't have. So when you pay based on enrollment and not attendance, the employer could do that. He could guarantee hours of work, right? Um, they wanted more paid sick time. They had only two sick days a year when we first started working with them. They wanted more you know, paid leave in general. They were able to do that because the system that was in place supported that. And that's, um, that's one of the really big challenges that we face now, right, in, in terms of trying to improve jobs. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a, you know, whether we're negotiating with an employer who's serving low-income kids or we're working with family child care providers, same thing. If, the, if you know, in uh, Suffolk County, they no longer, in New York, no longer pay when a child is absent. Well, that impacts that provider's bottom line. They can't make up that money. They don't pay for any program closure days. So, you know, you can't get a paid day to go get the professional development that you need as we increase standards and, you know, are trying to improve quality. So, Kristen, you mentioned earlier that you've done a lot of work through Moms Rising, um, trying to promote women's economic opportunities and access to benefits and, you know, uh, parity and various other things. Uh, a lot of these issues are obviously at play amongst the workforce that we're talking about in, in childcare. So I'm curious, how do we think about balancing the needs for um, providing affordable childcare and yet paying living wages to these women uh, who, who are actually working at the childcare centers? I mean, in, again, I, you know, I, I mentioned austerity earlier, and I think it's it's nice to be able to say, well, we, sh we should be, sp be spending more money on this, but in the political reality we live in, 
that may or may not happen. So I'm just curious, how do you think about balancing those two things, keeping costs down, but also providing a living wage to these women? I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the dual issue here, which is one, we have a greater economic safety net problem for families that is dragging our whole economy down. I'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but we also have the twin problem. There's one coin and on two sides of it. On one side of it, we've got parents who simply can't pay anymore. Childcare now costs more than college in most states in our country. And we don't have Pell Grant programs. We don't have early warning systems like start saving for preschool now. You're in, you know, 16 years old. <laughs> we don't have any of that kind of conversation going on in our culture. So parents absolutely are cash strapped when they're having kids and trying to put them into childcare. On the other side, we have childcare workers who on average are making about $19,000 a year. They have high turnover, not surprisingly, and also we can't pay them any less. Like, there's the, we're between a rock and a hard place. So we come back to, you know, we need to make bold investments in early learning. And what do those bold investments mean? What does that mean to our greater economic structure? Well, fortunately, the return on investment in early learning and childcare is astronomically high. It's not only high because we're allowing and enabling parents to work, and it's not only high because we're enabling kids to have um, high quality access to early education. It's high because we found that, for example, for every $1 that we put into early learning, taxpayers later get back $7. Why are we getting back that $7? We're getting back that $7 because there are lower grade repetitions in later years. There is less interaction with the criminal justice system in later years. And in later years, there's less reliance on longer term government entitlement programs for those families and for those children. So this is a significant ROI, return on investment as we like to call it, <laughs> as everybody in this room likes to call it. But it's something that state legislators and national legislators are starting to understand, that the return on investment in early learning and in childcare for taxpayers, regardless if you care about kids or not, is tremendous, right? There's a tremendous, the math is with us on this one. Now, the other issue of the math, though, is the issue of uh, the current state of sexism and discrimination against women in the workforce in America. I'll just put it on the table. And that is that women are facing a maternal wall. So what does the maternal wall look like? This is another thing that people don't tell you about, you know, before you have kids. So you have, you're going along, going along, haven't had kids yet, have kids, wham, the wall comes up. And what is it? Women without children make about 90 cents to a man's dollar. Women with children make about 73 cents to a man's dollar. Single moms, of which 41% of moms now are single moms, make only 60 cents to a man's dollar. And women of color have increased wage hits on top of that. So we're having babies again off a cliff in America, and babies are the economic engine of our future. And so what does that mean in terms of a systems approach, which was part of this question? Well, what that means is that we are behind in a whole system. When we have a baby in the United States of America, we don't have access to paid family and medical leave, which is just a little bit of bridge time to be able to recover from giving birth to your child, to bond, establish breastfeeding, and more. We don't have that. So parents are ending up leaving work sometimes because they don't have that time. And then the high cost of infant childcare is a one-two punch because now you're out of the labor force not making money and then you have to make that huge investment in infant childcare. You can see quite quickly how we end up with a quarter of young families living in poverty and how we end up with people struggling to get back on track at that point in their lives and how we end up with these wage gaps. Now, in closing, the good news is that there are solutions. So studies from other countries show that when family economic security policies are in place, 
like access to excellent affordable childcare, like access to paid family leave, like access to earned sick days, which by the way, 80% of low wage workers don't have, that the wage gap between moms and non-moms and the wage gap between women and men actually narrows. It's a win, 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 because we can raise all votes, help taxpayers, help businesses, help parents, and our national economy by passing policies like this one. And Moms Rising members are out there fighting every day for it, and uh, we stand behind them as, the, as we bring voices forward to say, hey, let's have a little wake-up call about what's going on in America. This is a big deal, not just for kids, but for our whole economy. So, Helen, there was recently a report in uh, a big story that I'm guessing a lot of the audience here has read in the New Republic talking about um, a lot of problems with the childcare system in the United States, about quality issues, standards issues, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how federal and state governments think about quality and regulate the industry and how that's changing. Um, and what are some of the quality and safety issues that we should be paying well, attention first, to? First of all, you get what you pay for. And I don't think that we ought to be having this conversation about the quality and safety of childcare without a conversation that is a bold, audacious plan to say that we're going to fix it and we're going to provide the resources to fix it. And the conversations that sometimes that we, we have are how are we going to fix it with existing resources? So just like we talked about you know, not helping enough families and what we pay providers, we have that issue in ensuring the health and safety of childcare facilities. Of course there should be more inspectors. We don't provide enough inspections, and our standards aren't high enough. Why, aren't they, why don't we provide enough inspections? Because we don't pay for them. At one point, states were covering more of those inspections. Most of the funding for those inspections come out of a limited pot of money that is the Federal Child Care and Development Block Grant that has actually, whose funding has actually declined since 2001. And so if you want to increase the number of inspections and have more unannounced inspections to make sure children are safe, then you have to increase that pot. Otherwise, you're taking away childcare assistance from low-income moms who have no choice but to work. Of course, there should be more inspections. What about standards? What about families who can't afford to pay for childcare? We have middle-income families who do their best and they are paying the bulk of costs themselves, or all the costs. If you go to a state, it's very interesting because standards are lower in states that have lower per capita incomes. We've created a childcare system that developed in order to find something that women can afford to pay for. It didn't develop on how we're going to, based on how can we find the best, ensure the best possible early childhood development experiences for all our children. And it is totally based on scarcity. So I thought that was a, a very important article. But the conversations about how to fix it can't happen in a narrow space where we say, well, we have a totally underfunded system. What are we going to take away in order to fix it? The president's plan would help a huge piece of it. It would guarantee that low and moderate income children have access to high quality preschool for a, a full school day. That's an important step. And it would guarantee that teachers, whether they worked in a childcare setting or a school setting or a Head Start setting, received the same compensation, an important step. It would take an important step on the infant side. We know that the bulk of brain development occurs in the earliest years of a child's life. It's always so interesting to watch Barry Brazelton talk about young babies, because he holds up the baby and he talks to the baby. You know, our babies need that kind of support and care. 
they're not getting it because they're, if they're in childcare, they, there are too few caregivers to give them what they need. So the president would take a first step there by putting over a billion dollars in high quality childcare experiences for infants and toddlers using the standards of the federal Early Head Start program. And he would expand funding for the Child Care and Development Block Grant. It would, it would move us on a path toward higher quality care. Will it do everything? No, but it is an important, important step to take. But we cannot have these conversations about how we do more for less and make child care better and safer and more accessible for families in this country. It's not acceptable and it's not fair. Denise, you have a lot of experience in organizing child care workers. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the challenges for doing that and, and what, the, what the benefits you've seen have been so far. So probably the biggest challenge is that only about 40% of child care is publicly funded, right? And so there are huge constraints in terms of what you can do to improve quality of jobs when the money isn't there and, and what parents can pay um, is limited. Um, unions, and, and I'm not just talking about the work that I do with CSEA and AFSCME, but SEIU, um, UFT in, in New York City, we've been working for the last um, many years to organize, and a lot of this work has been with um, home-based childcare providers. And I think what we have been able to do is um, play a major role in helping stabilize um, subsidy systems at the state level. So in many states we've been able to hold funding, we've been able to expand funding for low-income working families to have assistance to pay for child care subsidies. We've done a lot of work to improve the subsidy systems to make them work better so that providers get paid on time, um, so that the, the reimbursement rules support um, providing quality. Um, in New York, we uh, negotiated in our contract rolling out an automated payment system. And we can see in states like Illinois, I know, and we just got some numbers in New York State, the number of regulated home-based family child care providers participating in the subsidy system, serving children receiving subsidies has increased since 2007. There's been a huge increase. And actually, the number of legally exempt providers providing care in New York has decreased. Um, so in that sense, I think, you know, we, we, there are more kids in the subsidy system that are in regulated, um, regulated care. A lot of the work that we've been doing, I think, um, over the last couple years really is about organizing with parents to secure child care subsidies. And it's a, it's a huge issue. So, you know, the president's proposal is, is talking about eligibility up to 200% of the poverty level. What you should know right now in, in many states, certainly in many counties in New York, folks are getting assistance, are not getting assistance if they're over 100% of the poverty level. And um, we just did Which some, is very low, obviously. Very, it's like $23,000 yeah. for a, a family of four. And we just worked in, I mean, this is a telling story. In Suffolk County, we just did some work to secure county dollars for childcare subsidies. They had reduced eligibility from 185% to 100% of the poverty level. 2,000 kids lost childcare subsidies in a period of six months. We had providers in the community whose programs were decimated, couldn't make their rent, couldn't make their mortgage payments. And we were able to get the county to put some money in. And we had a press conference 
to kind of celebrate and tell the story. And guess the, the parent who came was a Head Start lead teacher. And a week before, or a couple weeks before, she had gotten notice that she made $5 too much. She was $5 over the 100% poverty level, and she was going to lose her childcare subsidy. The county increased eligibility, and she was able to keep her childcare subsidy. But that kind of says it all, right? She was a lead teacher in a Head Start program with many years' experience, about to lose her childcare subsidy. So, Susan, um, you know, I've been talking with a lot of working moms around the country about these types of issues. And one thing that a couple of mothers have mentioned to me was that they sort of assumed that the stress of finding childcare would end once their kids got to kindergarten. You know, because then, then you have a school day and it's free. But the problem is, obviously, as we know, the school day ends at 3 o'clock. The work day usually ends at 5. If you're working normal, you know, standard 9 to 5 hours. Um, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts uh, on the need for these other types of sort of jigsawed in um, after school care programs, um, school break care programs, evening programs, you know, particularly for, for um, parents who work sort of odd hours. Um, you know, what kind of availability is there given that like, if, you, if you're a parent and uh, you know, if there is no affordable institutional program and you want a babysitter, you know, maybe you can find, if you, have the, if you have the resources, maybe you can find a babysitter who can work 40 hours a week, but like that sort of weird two hour period, five days a week is not gonna really cut it. So I'm, yeah. I'm interested it's, to hear uh, I think school age programs uh, is yet another patchwork quilt that, that parents have to, have to navigate. And uh, sometimes uh, the bad guy there is not so much cost, but transportation. Uh, because here's what happens. If you're lucky and your children go to a school that has a good after-school program, you're lucky. Uh, if not, or if there's a waiting list or a number of other things, then you're not so lucky. Because how many parents can leave work at 3 o'clock and go pick up kids and take them somewhere? Not very many. Uh, we, we operate a, a number of after-school programs. And again, this is something that employers are interested in doing it. And usually, uh, I, very, very often, the problem is the school will transport the child home, but not to the center. The center may be closer. It would save them gas to bring the children to the center, but they don't do it for one reason or another. Uh, a number of our, uh, our uh, clients who have backup centers uh, use those programs, and they're used 100% over school breaks. And uh, you probably know in, in New York City alone, the schools are closed so many days that it, it, it's, it's a wonder that anybody can go to work. Uh, our clients <laughs> that, that, that operate backup centers open those programs, and we run robust, vigorous, fun programs for these school-aged children at all of the backup centers, uh, wherever we operate, not, not just New York. Uh, but again, it, it's taking the resources that we have and using them in the best way. One thing I did want to mention, just in response to the, the big money issue of childcare, uh, and this certainly isn't the overall solution to this problem, but over the 26 years that Bright Horizons has been in the business, we have brought in a billion dollars from corporate employers. That's a B, one billion dollars in the form of uh, buildings that are built, 
and resources that are afforded, but also in the salaries and benefits that the child care workers receive. So we have 20,000 employees in six countries. Most of them are teachers, and uh, they receive health care, dental care, vision, 401k, uh, a well-being program, and a whole host of other things. And the, what makes that possible is employers realizing what they get out of it in terms of being an employer of choice uh, and the money that they're, they're willing to put into it. it, it it's obviously not, not a solution of the big picture, but there it is, uh, and, and there's the money that's come in to, to, uh, to, to make this be a, uh, a viable program for, for the people who work in this field and who, who want to have a career in this field. Uh, so, Helen, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of families that rely on informal or relative care, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on um, if there are poli policies that we should be adopting that would accommodate those people. Because there are people who want relative care. They don't want to put their kid in a, in a daycare center or some sort of non-family, friend-type um, arrangement. Yeah, sure. And before I do that, on the school-age issue, on the scarcity side, now that we understand how important the early years are, we see some states and communities saying, let's take away the care for the older children. Right. And you know, right. seeing children as young as five right. being put at risk. Zero. So I just think that's an important thing to put on the, put on the map. Um, what, is, what is so amazing is that the, if you look at where the growth in the low-wage workforce is going to be, and in the growth in jobs, just period, right. for women, are going to be jobs in the low-wage workforce. And many of those jobs are non-traditional hours. And what's, it, it's hard to keep up. The definition of non-traditional hours used to be maybe just weekend and evening care. Or maybe you had a job that was shift work and your schedules changed every week or every other week. Now we have employers changing your schedules from day to day. That means it is really challenging to use a more formal child care provider. We have some model child care centers that are open 24 hours a day, but they're very few and hard to find. We were looking for one for HBO across the country, and there are, there are not very many. We have some family child care programs that are regulated. They're open for 24 hours. Again, very, very challenging to find. So these women must increasingly rely on the informal care. Denise called it legally exempt care. It could be a relative. It could be a neighbor. Um, they have to be flexible enough to change from day to day. It may be the children, and they should be, are in a Head Start or a high-quality pre-K program during the hours that those programs are open. Those moms, even if we have preschool available for all children, will still need that kind of care. There is an interesting tension in the field because we want our children to get the best quality. But while we're doing that, we have to ensure, remember I talked about mothers working. <laughs> We don't have a welfare system that says that we want to, we, we support mothers to stay home for four or five years and not work. Mothers have to work to pay the rent, to feed their children, and to, to be role models for their children. When they're not working, there's no safety net that they, they have, and so they have to go to work. So we, we have to make sure that childcare is available. And so some, some say we should only use public money to pay for licensed, regulated childcare. And that is a good goal, and that is where most of our public money goes for. But in our zeal to make sure that our children get the best care, which I think they should have, we can't preclude that option for the growing low, we can't preclude informal care options for the growing low-wage workforce. 
Otherwise, we're going to leave mothers again out in the cold and their children as well. You know, it's, it's a complex topic. We have to be able in our heads to, to, to put together a number of different strategies, and they may sound like they conflict, but they actually support children and families. It, and I just want to add, add to that because um, our unions have partnered very effectively in several states to work um, to expand access to affordable training for informal providers to work with states to really develop training um, that makes sense for them and to link that training to an enhanced reimbursement rate. So there's, uh, you know, in New York, New York that actually already existed, but the training wasn't there for folks to take. We worked with um, the state and rolled it out and have found that just intent attendance and engagement has been great. And the other thing is that some states do have some standards if uh, for legally exempt providers, if they're going to um, serve children who are receiving child care subsidies, there often are some uh, minimum health and safety standards in place. So we might want to look at that and maybe build on it. But in New York, in order to be an enrolled legally exempt provider, you have to meet some basic health and safety standards. The other thing that our unions have done is really work to um, improve uh, uh, child nutrition through making sure that the child and adult care food program is available to um, legally exempt providers, informal providers who are doing childcare in their homes, and that's happened in Illinois, some other states about to roll out, Pennsylvania. That's it's an important provision important. because the child and adult care food program actually visits family right. childcare providers several times a year in states. We talked about the fact that they don't have the funds to inspect, so if you can get children into the food program, they're <laughs> getting a nutritious meal and they're being inspected. One more interesting issue is, remember I talked about low rates. And if you look at some states like Michigan, which pays about $2.49 an hour, they started after welfare reform by paying $1.50 and they pay by the hour. Most of their providers are not regulated because if a state, a state's childcare policies can also affect parent choice. And if you pay providers a very limited amount of money and only by the hour, it may be that more formal providers just can't do it. So it, it, you have to have strong child care policies in place as right. well to ensure families have real choice. So Kristen, I have kind of a dumb question. Um, you know, I, I realize that amongst the, the women on this panel, child care is obviously a very important policy issue. But um, you know, I, I'm outside of DC. I'm, not, I'm, I'm somewhat of an outsider to this you know, to this world as well. I write about economics, but I don't focus specifically on childcare. And I don't hear as much um, pleading for more affordable childcare options as I do for other types of women-friendly work policies like paid sick days, like uh, paid maternity leave, flexible work hours, that sort of thing. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on why, um, why it seems like there hasn't been as much momentum behind an affordable child care push, I mean, aside from uh, Obama's uh, announcement that he wanted to have some sort of universal uh, preschool program. Um, but beyond that, I feel, and even that, I feel like I haven't heard about in months. Um, again, I'm sure it's a big deal amongst the people in this room, but for those of us who are not in this world, we don't hear about it as much. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the challenges for organizing women around this issue or other stakeholders. Well, there's a combination of issues happening, and one of them is that maternal wall, which you hit when you have children, happens at a moment when you are the busiest in your life, right? So all of a sudden, you're juggling multiple roles. You're juggling work, you're juggling kids, and you're leaving very little time for actual political engagement. 
And so we have that going on on one end. On the other end, we have an issue where, to be blunt, childcare and early learning hasn't been seen by many major news outlets, most of which have less than 20% women on their staff, as a real issue. And so it's often very difficult to get coverage of this type of issue because it's impacting women's economic security and it's part of the overall sort of gestalt of uh, the lack of both men in leader, uh, women in leadership, only 18% of Congress are women, and women in the media, and what's sort of said to be important. And so to have the president come out and say this is important has given this issue a big boost. Women have known it's important for a long time. So those are two things. The third factor is that we have a culture of rugged individualism in the United States of America. So what we find from our members is that they are working hard. They are playing by the rules. They're working two and three jobs, many of them, but they still can't get by. And they can't fit everything that they need to do in their calendars. But somehow it's sort of their fault. And so we, it, what we're finding in terms of movement building is it's still that old-fashioned movement building, which is the personal is political. So to surmount these types of things, we do a lot of story sharing. We do a lot of story sharing both between our members to, again, uh, say when this many people are having the same problem at the same time, we don't have an epidemic of personal failings. We have a structural issue that we can fix together in our glorious democracy. We share these stories with the media because many folks in the media actually don't realize what's happening. And so it's sort of an eye-opening moment. And we share these stories with leaders. I'll share a story with you right now. That, that, that I think really says a lot. But it is that, um, this is from Christina in New York. Quote, while my husband and I fully appreciate the reasons why childcare is so expensive, we want reasonable pay for caregivers, we want to pay for healthy food, and we know that there's utility costs. We are frustrated by the fact that our childcare costs are higher than our mortgage and our car payments combined. So we have people struggling. And I think one thing to understand is what's going on is that on average families making less than $1,500 a month are paying 53% of their incomes each month for childcare, right? So we're back to the busyness. There is huge amounts of work going on by parents. And that gets to what you all were talking about, about needing um, different types of childcare opportunities because we see increasingly, you know, one parent working one shift and the other parent working another shift and, you know, all kinds of arrangements being made to try to raise a healthy child who can thrive. So at Moms Rising, we found that we can do four things to break through this, and, and I think it's important. The first thing is that we have to be nimble and responsive. So anytime there's anything about early learning or childcare in the news, we have to jump on it, and we have to say, now is the time to raise your voices, because we need to jump on that, grab those tails, and make this a bigger news story. We've also found that we need to constantly test messaging, see what actually resonates, what breaks through. Each person in our country now receives over 3,000 media messages per day, as an aside, so breaking through that is important. We found that we need to be in dialogue with our constituency and not just broadcast. That means listening to what's important, what aspects of child care and early learning are important, and responding to that. And then this is the most important thing for busy parents. We need to have as many avenues for engagement open at the same time. And this is where you get to, oh my gosh, what does it mean to be a modern online and on the ground organization? Well, part of that is the opening up of massive numbers of avenues for people to have their voices heard about a central issue. So you have things like take one click to connect with your elected official, which is five seconds if you only have five seconds while you're juggling 80 other things. Or you could share your story for a little bit longer, or you could visit your elected official if you have longer, or you could represent other moms and bring forward the voices and the um, experiences of other moms forward. So having that sort of um, 
environment of avenues for people to have their voices heard and to deliver those messages is critically important. But the one thing that is also important is that we have found that the voices of moms, the stories of moms, have a bigger impact than we ever would have thought. We have won eight of our nine last early learning priorities at the state level. We've been winning national legislative fights, not on early learning yet, but on other issues involving fair pay, involving healthy foods for kids. And we've been knowing that together, we can actually fix our broken child care system. So I want to share with everybody that we have heard a lot of depressing stats. But there's also a lot of room for hope. We have leadership, we have momentum, and we have change. And just I want everybody who is a mom briefly to raise your hand. Now, everybody who has ever had a mom, please raise your hand. <laughs> All right, this is our movement, right? And together, we can actually surmount the challenges. And I really am excited and hopeful about the momentum that's being created in this moment in time. So I think we'd like to open it up to questions. I believe there are microphones somewhere around here. Oh, OK. Conveniently seated next to the microphone. <laughs> My name is Valerie Young. I'm with the National Association of Mother Centers. Um, are you making any distinction, and this is for everybody on the panel, between early learning and childcare? It seems to me pretty easy to say, well, there's really no difference because from the earliest days, the child is susceptible to development and learning, not perhaps in an academic sense, but but in senses of you know, organizing the neurons and, and the neuroscience of it. Are these two terms used interchangeably now? Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think so, because you know, think of it this way. You know, uh, there's an infant in a childcare program, and uh, a teacher is changing the baby's diaper and interacting with the baby. A teacher is feeding this baby. A teacher is doing all these, having the baby have tummy time on the floor and all those good things. But those are the, those are the tasks that are happening. There's a really big thing happening. And the really big thing is that that child is or is not going to develop a sense of security and well-being. And, and, and I think at, at all the ages along the way, the toddler that's pouring milk and some of it's not hitting the glass and so on, is, is developing a sense of independence. So I, I, I think you have to look at this as, as uh, certainly care uh, and education all, all happening at the same time. And these big things are happening while these children are in our care for, for a lot of hours every day. I'm sure you all know that a, a child that comes to a child care center or a home care provider at, say, six, eight weeks and stays there until he or she goes off to kindergarten will have spent more time in that situation than in K through 12. It's a lot of hours. So I, I think it's all about care. It's all about safety. It's all about education. And it's all rolled up in one package. But the hardest part is that we, we have the biggest shortages around the infant side because infant care is expensive. And so we have enormous waiting lists at programs for infants. Um, we, every single mother, regardless of income, will tell you how hard it is to find good infant care. It's obviously harder for low-income children. And we keep talking to policymakers about the importance of those years and what happens and why they're so important to development and just why it is so important to talk to your babies on the changing table. Rob Reiner did a huge national campaign in the late 90s, the cover of Newsweek, the cover of Time, and you had senators and legislators looking at brainwaves. And unfortunately, it just doesn't sink in enough. And so 
we've so we've made some progress, but it's very limited on ensuring that our babies in those key years get the kind of care they need. And I would agree that all childcare should be about early childhood education, but I also think that it, you know, again, we're talking, and I think, you know, it's great that the president is raising the issue of early childhood education, but that's really what universal pre-K is. It's a, you know, a five or six hour day is not going to meet the needs of working parents. And, you know, and we do have to take into consideration the children and you know, while the professional development and a teacher who has degrees is one component of a quality program, we also have to think about continuity of care. How many transitions are these kids going through in rural Pennsylvania? If a kid's got a, you know, an hour ride on a bus and an hour ride home, is that the best option or would we be better off looking at how to provide you know, stronger pre-K options in, in the family child care homes where those kids are, you know, in rural areas. So I just think that's, that's an important thing to think about. But absolutely, every moment a child is in care, you know, should be uh, about best quality care and, and early childhood education. Here. Uh, George and Adriana Safakis, uh, we run a company here in Washington, Excella, and three young children at home that we're raising. And I applaud you all in the Economic Opportunities Program for bringing this to light to knock down these sector silos. It appears to us that it's not only an economic issue, but a national security issue. So breaking through to the policymakers and others that are looking at this, lining up the school day with the work day. Like school ends at three, so my wife has to run out and get the kids out of school. We can do it because we own our own company. Most can't. And so it's so frustrating to just watch the status quo. And so I would like to applaud you all for having this discussion and trying to knock down these silos, really sector silos, to address the issue from a holistic approach. So it's really a note of gratitude to you for bringing this up. On the national security issue, I do have a little bright light, and that is that the Department of Defense actually has hundreds of thousands of kids in their care. They have an amazing program where parents pay on a sliding scale and where there is a career and wage ladder for child care providers. It's very different than what we're seeing in the public sector. And so on, in terms of the bright lights, I'm glad you brought that up because there is a system that it could be scaled to some degree. It would be very expensive but uh, it, it could be scaled and we would achieve long-term cost savings from it as well. So a question back here. Hi, I'm Lori Morris. I'm with, uh, I have a family foundation that focuses on early care and education, investing in that. And um, given that the big issue really is a policy issue and funding and breaking down silos, all the things that you brought up, back to the bright lights or bright spots across the country and recognizing you can't do actually more with less, have, have you found cities, communities that really have been innovative in either gaining more, changing local policy, uh, working with the state, uh, reorganizing funding, bringing in um, more corporations, et cetera, that you know, might be highlights that we could think about? There are highlights. Um, the state of North Carolina has been very innovative because it created these smart start local coalitions, but funded by public money. 
that have been able to raise some private dollars to expand the services to children in in the community and they've had they have a strong program that helps teachers go back to school and they have a good pre-k program and programs have been able to put it together we have seen we see innovative programs across the country that put head start together with child care or you know they actually take pre-k and head start and put it together so children can have a full and more intensive day there are some communities that have done a better job of involving the private sector kansas city used to be a model community i don't think it's it's as exciting anymore. Palm Beach does some wonderful things, but part of it is because they have a uh, they have a tax, they have a local tax, and they have a very supportive private community. I think you you can highlight some very exciting places. The bottom line is sort of where we started. You need a third party payer, yeah. and if we care and we think that these years are important enough for children's development, and we think it's important enough to ensure that women can work and support their families, this should be a top national priority. Yeah. Um, and you can't, you, you can do better, um, but you can't do enough by all our children unless we say we're gonna take this seriously and it's gonna rise to the top of the agenda. Hi, uh, my name is Corey Mingual. I'm the program coordinator with the Child Care Licensing Program here at uh, Mary Center, a local community-based organization. We work with a lot of child care providers to help them to navigate the licensing process. And um, essentially something that, um, that I've been experiencing, this relates to a lot of what Helen was saying, is that we, when we see local governments trying to do more with less, what I witness is kind of they ratchet up a lot of the regulations without providing the support for the providers to meet those regulations. And so what you end up doing is you expand kind of what you could call a, a black market of childcare where yes. you have a lot of providers right. that, that operate outside of the framework of the regulations. Yep. So you know the governments can say, oh look, all of our providers are meeting X standard, but they're not recognizing that maybe you know the, the growing part of the sector is is operating outside of the regulations. So you're actually having less children uh, provided under that basic level of, of um, and health and safety. So I, I wanted to see if you all had any ideas about you know, what can be done. Um, you know, Denise, I, I, you mentioned some exciting things that can be done in terms of uh, provider organization. I know that in my experience, it's very challenging for home providers, especially because they're very isolated. Um, a lot of times the regulation doesn't, uh, is, not, is even less responsive to them because they're working alone. They, it's harder for them to organize. Um, and then a second part of my question would be, um, in terms of the rising cost of childcare with, with it, compared to the stagnant wages, um, you know, I have my own perspective on where that additional cost is coming from, but I wanted to see if perhaps you all could comment on specifically where, you know, why is that cost increasing when the wages are, are not uh, increasing in the same way, so, so, so thank you. So in, in terms of the regulatory system, um, our unions have worked in several states. I'll just talk about New York because that's the one I know best. So when we um, began to negotiate with the Office of Children and Family Services, we asked for a regulatory work group. And in many states, regulations go unrevised for many, many, many years. You know, in Pennsylvania, when went unrevised for many years because people were afraid that if we raise them, that there would be a coalition of folks that would want to do away with regs, right, altogether. So it was high time for the regs in New York to be reviewed. And we actually kicked off the process, it was about three or four years ago now, and sat down 
um, went over every single reg um, with our provider work group and about six or seven folks who work for the state, right? Um, and we went through every reg for family child care, for group family child care. Um, they did a similar process for centers, but we're just now finally getting ready to introduce these new regs. The state will be introducing them. And there are some significant improvements. And we also made them simpler. Like there were some regs that just the supervision reg for family child care, essentially it read that you had to have your eyes on every child in your care all the time. And there were some licensors that took that to the word, right? It wasn't the intent of the reg, it was to the word. So, so we have a much better supervision reg that makes sense. Some of the regs are that, you know, around screen time, around nutrition, really improved. And it was an excellent working process. The other thing that we do is we work regular, you know, OCFS, we meet with them every uh, six weeks or so. But we have, a, we have a, a resource center, a child care resource center, so it's a toll-free number. Any provider in the state can call us at any time. We have three staff people who are former uh, registered and licensed group family providers who know the regs. So we provide the kind of support that the system used to provide, right? Back in the day when the caseloads weren't so high and right, the licensors actually could provide technical assistance and not just hopefully get out there to complete their mandated visits. So we've really worked in, in partnership around that, and I know that it's happened in other states. And, and the other thing we've worked on, I mean, even though we don't have more resources, we really have worked, um, we have a good partnership, so they've done more training with the licensors and the registrars. And we just, the last meeting we had actually, we learned that um, there's been a decrease in enforcement actions. And we believe that you know it has to do with our, our partnership and folks being in more compliance. And as to the cost, I got to tell you, every the cost of everything has gone up. And and so I mean, families are struggling because they're paying more for rent, they're paying more for their mortgages. I can certainly say that that's true for these family childcare providers. Insurance, business insurance, they have to pay for liability insurance. In New York State right now, there's a huge crisis. They can't get homeowners insurance. Home, insurance carriers are canceling their policies just because they do family child care in their home. Transportation is a huge issue, whether you run a center or not. If you're gonna transport kids and provide that after school care, and a lot of our folks do provide before and after school care, now they have to have a commercial transportation insurance policy. Do you know how much that costs? It's, you know, they can't charge these parents more. And, and so on, right? You know, he costs more food, okay? So we love the Child and Adult Care Food Program. We think it's just great. And there are some good standards. Kids who, you know, providers who are enrolled in CACFP, we know those kids get more nutritious meals on a regular basis. USDA wants to raise the standards, right? More whole grains, you know, all things that, that we agree are good. But, you know, where's that money gonna come from? Because already the reimbursement rates don't cover the cost, right, for providers. So, but it, it certainly isn't, um, you know, the, the, the workers in the field, wherever they're working are not. It, in fact, it, you know, generally the trend has been that they're, they're, they tend to be paid less. Their wages have not increased the way that wages, who work, folks who work in other jobs have. Okay, they want to raise the standards without a single dime yeah, in exactly. increasing reimbursement rates. Right. right. Same kind of issue. Right 
kind of used to this kind of passing by. <laughs> uh, my name is Li Yang. I appreciate your effort on the child care because I have uh, brought up two children myself. And I know how difficult to turn them around when you send it to the school and everything, they really ruin it. But my question is that I've been through a lot of organizations. Every time they identify some problem, what they are going to do is ask the three-level government for money. Once the money they got, they don't really serve the purpose. The money, the money is gone, then you ask for more, and for all kinds of reasons, inflation or lack of the services. So my question is, uh, we are going to provide um, good nutritional, educational environment, and the most uh, natural resources or environment is family. So uh, you mentioned about income, you mentioned a lot of frustration. The problem is we, we have those frustration, why don't we fix them? For instance, you have an income problem, then why do they ask you to pay for more for traffic ticket, for more for contemporary order, for more for bail and bond, and then they divide the parents to send them to the jail, both mother and the husband. And then they say divide the grandparents and send them to the rehab, even they don't have problem and they don't want to be divided. So if we can have a grandparents or parents get together and they provide good services, and it's most natural and less costly. Can you address this type of issues? We have mass incarceration. I, I think the question has to do with natural provide, providing of our environment, which is nutrition, yes. nourishing, and educational, and ask the government to give us safety and income back rather than high taxation. I'm, I'm not sure I followed that I, question, I but, but if you want to address it, go ahead. <laughs> well, one thing that's important is that in our changing economy, what we actually make money on as a nation, what actually helps our economy rise as a whole, has changed. So right now, a lot of people, for example, have been concerned about the cost of food stamps. And, but what's interesting about that is right now, studies show that for every $1 that we invest in food stamps, taxpayers are getting back $1.73. And that's because if we cannot spend money, if I cannot go to the local store and buy my sandwich, if I cannot go and get shoes, then our whole economy, which is based on consumer spending, fails. So we've moved from a manufacturing economy to a consumption economy without really adjusting our thoughts about how we fuel that economy and how that economy grows. And this fits into the early learning and childcare situation because we're in the same scenario here, only the return on investments are much higher. When we invest in the early learning and childcare, again, for a regular child, every $1 invested, we're getting $7 back. And we're getting that back because of things that you mentioned, like less interaction with the criminal justice system, less future grade repetitions, and importantly, less reliance on government entitlement programs, mm -hmm. other ones. And so empowering people to be able to live their lives to be able to spend money, to be able to go to work is a big thing that this is about because frankly, if people don't have access to early learning and childcare opportunities, they cannot go to work. And our children fail. Our children cannot thrive. So I think in terms of investments, we've really got to change our mind. We're being penny wise and pound foolish. We want to save a penny today, but we're actually losing $1,000 tomorrow. 
And so this is really about also the big changes in our economy and also the big changes in our family. Maybe I, I don't know if I answered well. <laughs> I think we have uh, time for one more question over here. I don't need the mic. <laughs> <laughs> they want the mic. Okay. They're Siobhan Campbell and I work for DC Children and Youth Investment Trust Corporation and we actually fund after school programs um, with government and a little bit of private funding. So my question is, um, do you think that we could ever actually catch up to our international counterparts? Because we know that women can be off from work six months to a year and still return back to their jobs. Yeah. So I'm not sure where all of the funding comes from in those situations, but do you think they we They have much can, higher taxes. <laughs> do you that's, think we can ever catch up? And then I did have an additional question, but I forgot it. So. This summer, uh, my husband and I took a little trip. And it just so happened that as we were leaving on the trip, there was a lot in the news about we're going to become like Europe, like this was the worst thing that could happen to us. So we went on our little trip, and we went to Sweden, and we went to Denmark, and we went to um, Norway. And um, you know, we talked to a lot of people, and we talked to, to young people, and we saw what childcare was, and how people get to go to college, and the rates of people going to college. We kept looking at each other and saying, how is it going to be bad when this happens? What, <laughs> what, what's going on here? And honestly, obviously, the taxation rate is totally different. It's a totally different system. But you know, people not worrying about early education and college and old age, um, I don't know, and health care. Uh, we couldn't, for the life of us, figure out after two weeks how this was a bad thing. And my part two, do you know of any states or um, places where the public and the private sector actually work together? to um, provide funding for these programs, early child care pro programs? You, you know, unfortunately, the, the private sector contributes about 10%, but the, we, we can't expect the private sector has not shown a willingness to pick up the bulk of, of the cost. In North Carolina, private sector contributes to Smart Start programs, and sometimes in some states there's a small private sector contribution to the match that's required for the Child Care and Development Block Grant program and clearly you know the private sector has stepped up to provide more care to its employees they're just in 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 some of the huge issues we talked about today in terms of access and ensuring basic quality it, it, i think it's hard to depend on the private sector for um a huge role. They can definitely do more, but I don't think we have a state where the private sector has said, no, we're going to be equal partners. To your issue of paid family leave, there are some proposals, five states have passed some form of paid family leave. There are some proposals that have it uh, paid for by both an employee paycheck deduction as well as by partially funded by that employer. So we are seeing, and the state, so we are seeing some of that happening in that aspect of your question. So um, that brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you all so much, and I want to give a big round of applause to our panel. Do stop by our resource table. There's a number of resources there, and I hope you'll come to our next event in our series. Thank you again.